Well, hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, here's what's coming up on this edition. First up, you'll hear from Dale and Gina Forehand, who discuss with me elements of their reconciled marriage and some principles of building a strong marriage in Christ. Then some comments from D.A. Horton, who reinforces the notion of couples fighting for their marriages in the Lord rather than concentrating on fighting one another. And coverage of the March for Life. You'll be hearing from pro-life filmmaker, speaker, and contributor to the stream, Jason Jones, with comments about the significance of the pro-life movement. Also coming up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, from the American Pastors Network, you'll be hearing from Sam Rohrer as he discusses the posture and approach of pastors toward various issues from the standpoint of the authority of Scripture. He also shares information about a new initiative dealing with standing for God's truth. Plus, former Secret Service officer Gary Byrne joined me recently. He's made the rounds with a number of news outlets, and he shared with me about some of the challenges facing the agency, as well as how his faith has been integrated into his work. Finally, from Focus on the Family, Glenn Stanton with some relevant analysis to counter some concerns expressed about overpopulation, including his response to criticism leveled at the fixer-upper couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines, and others for having too many children. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Dale and Gina Forehand are the co-founders of Stained Glass Ministries and are devoted to help strengthen married couples. Their marriage was actually rocked by divorce, but they reconciled, and they offered some Christ-centered encouragement in a recent conversation with me. Here now are Dale and Gina Forehand. After eight and a half years of marriage, our um, we were not in a good place in our marriage and uh, ended up in divorce. Uh, fighting for custody of our kids. It was kind of a two-year process, and then God put our family back together and stripped us of a bunch of religion and a bunch of activity, religious activity, and and exchanged us with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And out of that, God uh, was able to put our marriage back together, so all to His glory. And now for the last 18 years, we've been traveling around and, and helping other people um, have thriving marriages. Um you know, some people think, oh, the conference is just for people who have problems. Well, that's not true. Number one, I think we all need areas in our marriage that we need help with. You know, I mean, my goodness, marriage is hard sometimes. And so, um, you know, together at the Springs is for those who find themselves in a really hard place in their marriage to the ones who are just like, you know what, I just want to, I, I just want to better my marriage. And, um, and, you know, we've always heard the old adage of, you know, if you if you if you don't change the oil in your car, your your car goes bad. Well, so we always do a tune up on our cars. Why not do a tune up on your marriage? But um, you do need to invest. And Dale and I learned that the hard way of the value that comes when you invest, even just a weekend of just one on one time with your spouse. It makes all the difference in the world. Well, Dale, I wanted to ask you when you look at the how God brought your marriage back together. I, I, as I recall, what I know of your story, both you and Gina were, you were church people. You were, you were in the church, kind of met in the church. And, and we recognize that marital trouble will, will actually be something that people, whether or not they are Christians, there will be times of challenge. There will be times of difficulty. You'll have marriages that will get in trouble, even among 
Christian people. So what do you see as maybe the disconnect and how did it work for the two of you where, you know, you were, you were church folk, but those, those principles that perhaps you were experiencing in the church weren't quite getting translated over into the marriage realm. Is that right? Am I recalling correctly? Yeah, I think part of our, you know, as we look back on our 18-year journey of ministry now and then that first eight and a half years of our marriage, you know, what Gina mentioned is, you know, we were religiously active, but we were not spiritually intimate. And Mm -hmm. so we kind of boiled down our faith experience to church attendance, committee membership, faithful giving, tithing, you know, those things. And none of those things are wrong by themselves, but the disconnect is when we have a lot of stuff in our head that doesn't make itself into our heart, and we don't actually put those things into practice. And then as we, we know there's a real big spiritual dynamic that goes on here with an enemy who is loving to destroy Christian homes. And so there's a lot of things here at, at play, Bob. You know, the, our own approach to our experience or intimacy with the Father, uh, not understanding how the adversary comes against our marriages, not really being able to fight him well and then live in what we teach a lot is about identity and walking with God and walking in freedom and knowing who we are. Those were the disconnects. And so when you don't have those places connect, you find yourself in, in the church hiding behind the mask of performance, but quietly knowing in your own heart that your marriage is struggling. And I think that's one of the great indictments that we see universally across the, the big C church as we travel into our marriage conferences with them. And so for us, it was really a stripping, a breaking, a, uh, you know, narrowing the gap, getting us desperate for the Father, understanding what that means, dealing with our own woundedness. I mean, there was a lot of things that we were not quite prepared to uh, or didn't understand the first eight and a half years. Knowing that now, one of the joys of our heart is to help people, couples, understand no matter where they are in their marriage, whether it's a crisis couple or a thriving couple, there's that work of the Spirit of God that He's after something in us. And that's the great joy that Gene and I get to see, having marriages come alive and living out who God wants him to be. Dale and Gina Forehand here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website daleandgina.com. This is The Intersection Podcast with founding and lead pastor at Reach Fellowship in North Long Beach, California, D.A. Horton. He talked with me recently and shared principles of marriage related to the book that he and his wife, Alicia, have co-written entitled, Enter the Ring, Fighting Together for a Gospel-Saturated Marriage. This is D.A. Horton now. The aspect of marriage from mine and Alicia's vantage point is that, you know, it is, it's, it's a tangible illustration of the gospel. It is, it, it should be a reflection of the, albeit imperfect, an imperfect reflection of Christ's love for his bride, and it should restore hope to people to understand the pursuit that God has for those whom he loves, those whom he has redeemed, and it should be basically drawing the onlooking world to jealousy, to say, I desire that kind of love and that kind of a covenant relationship with God, and if Jesus is the one who makes that a reality, then then what must I do to encounter Jesus? And so looking at even our own lives and our imperfections, our deficiencies, uh, we believe that, that marriage can be a billboard for the gospel and it can highlight the sufficiency of Christ 
And it can allow people who are broken to bring their brokenness and put it into the hands of God who can make their brokenness into something beautiful. And writing a book on marriage is actually a very daunting task uh, in itself, especially being uh, as young as Alicia and I are and only 15 years into marriage. And, and to some, that seems like a long time. But when I compare to 50-year marriages out there and 40-year marriages and 20-year marriages, uh, there, there's, a, there's an essence of humility uh, that we have. Uh, when we put forth uh, the content for Enter the Ring. And um, in God's grace, we believe that he works in spite of us, not because of us. And so with that, uh, we, we we're hopeful uh, to see the things that have been taking place with the people who've been engaging with the book so far. Mm. Well, the book is called Enter the Ring, and the subtitle, as I mentioned, Fighting Together for a Gospel-Saturated Marriage. Now, you think about this concept of a, a boxing ring or a, a fighting ring. It's obviously, I would think that you would have come in contact with marriages where, well, it might resemble a boxing ring, but the couples are fighting against one another. You're talking about a concept here that is foreign to that with respect to fighting together. So describe, if you would, this concept of a boxing ring or a fighting ring and how couples can actually maybe transition from fighting one another to recognize that God has called them to fight together for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, we actually open up our the introduction with a story uh, during our engagement period where we were actually fighting each other. And, uh, you know, the engagement was broke off. Alicia threatened to sue me. It, it got pretty bad. Oh, wow. And it was out in the public. Yeah. And it was it was uh, during a time in the early morning hours that nothing respectable ever happens. And so we show the readers that, man, we have spent so much time fighting each other rather than fighting with each other against the world system, against the enemy of our soul and even our very own flesh. And so the concept of understanding the truth of the gospel is that even as we are no longer enemies of God and we've been reconciled to God because of Christ, he has satisfied the wrath of God. We have peace with God and the peace of God. All of those attributes should be reflecting in a marriage. Uh, and so when we begin to recognize my wife is not my enemy and I am not her enemy. And we begin to look at the trifecta of the enemies that we're facing in this ring that wants to rip us apart, that wants to break us apart, that wants to shame us. Uh, we have to run back to Christ and we have to declare our dependency on him. And that's when we had to begin to be more open in our communication. Uh, we had to extend forgiveness more liberally. We had to show mercy on a consistent basis. And we had to begin to work together to find what are the barriers that are preventing us from this oneness that we see in Scripture that a husband and wife should have? And we began to attack those walls of, of barriers to oneness. And we begin to recognize that as we put forth that work, the Lord blessed that work, and he began to develop a rhythm of interdependency between us. And that's when we begin to say, man, Lord, you are really at work in our marriage. Where you have brought us from and where we desire for you to take us, we're in that interim period. And if God can do it for us, we mm. know that he can do it for other marriages out there. D.A. Horton here on The Intersection. His website is dahorton.com. The Intersection continues now with the founder of Movie to Movement, Jason Jones, a pro-life speaker and contributor to the Stream website. He shared observations from the 2018 March for Life, analyzed media coverage of the march versus the women's marches that occurred the day after, and also offered comments on limitations placed on the pro-life message. From that conversation, this is Jason Jones. 
Well, you know, I was also at the Women's March. As a, I was with my children. I live in Hawaii, so I was taking them around Washington, D.C. So I saw both marches. The March for Life is a celebration of human dignity. It's diverse, men and women of all ethnicities, all religions, all cultures. I saw a Hindu, a Hindu family along the road holding up a sign that said Indians for Life with their big sign. So Muslims, of course, Christians. I saw a big sign that said secular for life, another sign that said atheists for life. It was a big, beautiful, diverse crowd. And then you went to the Women's March, and it really just they all looked the same, talked the same, acted the same. There was no diversity. It was just ideologues descending on a city to advance an ideology, where the March for Life was Americans descending on our nation's capital to celebrate the founding principle that we know that we are endowed by God with inalienable rights, and the first among those, of course, by necessity, is the right to life. And um, it's just a celebration. If you know you're listening, you got to go to the March for Life next year. It's one of the most profound, beautiful experiences you will ever have in your life. So you have one march. You know, I, I say it's not the March for Life. It's not an anti-abortion march. It's an anthropology march. It's it's marching for a certain vision of the human person. And the Women's March is an anthropology march. And it has a certain vision of the human person. Well, sometimes as Christians, we're, we're afraid to say this because we want to always be secular and build bridges. But here's the reality. That when the second person of the Trinity became man in a very quiet way, in the remote, remote region of the Roman Empire, a small group of people came to understand the true nature of the human person. And that vision through the church spread around the world. And then our founding fathers and our founding principle, they, they took that vision of the human person and placed it in our Declaration of Independence. And the Constitution became a frame, as Abraham Lincoln said, for the golden apple. The golden apple was what? That vision of the human person as having an incomparable dignity, beauty, and worth. And so when you see one march, that march re reflects the vision of the human person that it is advancing. And then when you see that other march, a march that sees human beings as worthless, as having no intrinsic dignity or worth, that just there are different people competing for power. Well, you look at that march, and it reflects its vision of the human person. And that's why the pro-life movement is the most important. It is the largest social movement in the history of the world by the grace of God, and is the most important social movement because it is fighting for the principle, not just that our nation is built upon, but that the West is built upon. And that is the principle the vision of the human person having incomparable dignity. We didn't get that from Plato, who said you take defective children outside the city and you smash their heads against rocks. We didn't get it from Aristotle. We didn't get it from the Stoic philosophers. It came to the world through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And now the secular West accepts that principle, but it denies the anthropology of it. It denies the founding reality of it. And so now we have this competition. And that competition is really two visions of the human person. And so when we win the battle to protect the child in the womb from the violence of abortion, we will see a transformation of our society, of our country, and of our civilization. And that's the goal. By the way, this isn't the first time. There are always threats to that vision. Our nation had three main major threats, the first being slavery, a brutal denial of our founding principle, a brutal denial of the incarnation. Then we had institutional segregation a brutal denial of the incarnation, a brutal denial of, of the declaration principle. And now we have abortion and we're going to win this struggle. And guess what? 
our great-grandchildren, they're going to have their own struggle. It's always a long march to Mordor, but that's what we're called to do. We're called to plant olive trees that our grandchildren can sit under, and we're sitting under the olive trees that our grandparents planted. And it's a constant struggle to renew our civilization, to build a culture of life. I have seven children, so I'm passionate about this because I want to make sure that my grandchildren can have the same blessings of liberty and prosperity that I have. Jason Jones here on The Intersection. You can find out more information about his organization by going to movietomovement.com. The stream website is thestream.org. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info. When you visit, you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. Also, through that homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Also, you can access The Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more through the website faithradio.org. In the programming section, you can actually connect to the Meeting House homepage. There are two blogs accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page and get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit faithradio.org and go to the programming section. The intersection continues now with the Honorable Sam Rohrer, a former state representative from Pennsylvania who serves as president of the American Pastors Network and Pennsylvania Pastors Network. In a recent conversation, he discussed the purpose of the organization, its approach to issues, and the We Will Stand initiative recently introduced. Now some content from that conversation. This is Sam Rohrer. I'm not going to go to an issue like abortion first. I'm not going to go to an issue like homosexuality first. I'm not going to go to an issue of overtaxation or uh, out-of-control immigration first. These are the things that are in the news. These are important issues that we strike, and I try to go very clearly and say, I believe, as concerned American citizens, as Christians, we have for perhaps a generation been more concerned about shaping symptoms than we have of identifying and fixing root problems. All of those things that I mentioned, abortion and homosexuality and sexual deviancy of all types, those are not the problem. Those are symptoms. Now, what does the pulpit do about them? What do we say needs to be done? We think what God says. And God says that that, that our responsibility is to understand what God says, agree with God, and obey Him in all things. The problem that we've had in America is that we are now facing a time, and have for some time, where there, you know, believe it or not, less than 30% of the pulpits in America, and those are even those who describe themselves to be evangelical, less than 30% actually believe in the authority of Scripture. Now, it's not that they don't hold the Bible in their hand, but when quizzed, when surveyed by such uh, researchers as uh, George Barnum, with whom we Mm -hmm. do a lot of work and have him on Mm -hmm. our radio programs often on research. One of the things that's been found is that those in the pulpit may have the Bible in their hand, 
but they don't necessarily believe that it is all true. They may think it contains the Word of God, but they don't believe that it is the Word of God. That is where we must start. If the pulpits and of Christians across America who say they are Christians but do not believe that the Bible is, in fact, God's authoritative Word, then, in effect, they are all saying that they are God, because they can pick and choose what they believe to be true. So that's why when we say underneath the American Pastors Network is the belief in the authority of Scripture, it is that there is absolute truth, it is found in Scripture, and it is all true. So that's why I go first on that as in trying to challenge people across the country, say, what is your relationship to God? Uh, you, do, if you say you're a Christian, which 73% of all of those polled across American surveys would say they are a Christian, yet when you narrow it down, less than 30% of that number would say they are born-again Christians. The others are traditional or whatever, but they're not born again. That's almost 30%. But then when you take and you, then you burrow into that, Bob, go down into that, of those who actually believe the Scripture is authoritative, of those who actually believe that Jesus Christ lived a totally sinless life, of those who believe that there's only one way through to, to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ with faith alone. When you factor in all of those things, you're down in the range of around 8 or 9 percent of all of those who say they are Christians who truly manifest a true relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're talking authenticity. We're talking being and doing exactly what the Word of God says. And I believe that's how God is looking at America. That's how he's always looked at those who, who say they're Christians. And uh, that, I think, is the greatest challenge for America today. The American Pastors Network has launched this We Will Stand initiative. Tell us about that and how pastors can get involved in it. The We Will Stand initiative is just the first step into being a part of uh, the principles and the mission for which APN has been stand. And it, and it really is there for Christian leaders and even those in the pew. It's not just for pastors, but it's simply we will stand, meaning we will stand on those things we said. We will stand on the authority of Scripture. We will stand for the defense of faith and uh, salvation by faith in Christ alone. And we will stand in the preaching the faithful preaching of God's Word, applying the principles of what God says to the issues of the day, preparing the sheep, uh, uh, protecting the sheep in that congregation, helping our people to know how to be effective salt and light, which is the command of God, in this culture in which we live. That first step will be will get them in and then allow them to become a part somewhat of what we're doing. Sam Rohrer here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. The Intersection continues now with former Secret Service officer Gary Byrne. He's the author of the book Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. In our overall conversation, he describes some of his experiences in the agency, some aspects of his faith perspective, and observations about the current state of the agency. From that conversation, some material now from Gary Byrne. In my late 20s, I, had a, I took a, a test one time. Uh, it was like a, a psychological battery, and, and I, I scored very high in, in, in the ability and the, the need to protect people. So, you know, I kind of found, my path kind of found me. I, I rely heavily on, on my, my faith. Um, you know, I've never done anything 
that I had to take a deep breath before I, I, I stepped off to do it and didn't say, you know, watch over me or, or with the grace of God. So, um, and I'm grateful for everything that I've gotten. Um, my time in the Air Force, my time in the Secret Service, my time as an Air Marshal, and then these two books. I've gotten to tell my, I've gotten a voice, you know, to, to speak with my voice and, and tell the good and the bad. You detail from your your time in the Clinton White House. How is it that you're able to really maintain your focus even when you may not approve of some of the the behavior that you're seeing going on behind the scenes? It, it comes down to two things, and, and and it's it's based in faith, but it's also based in 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 the faith in the in the Constitution and, and the oath that you take. So. The way it worked for me is, you know, long before I got to the Secret Service, um, well, like we mentioned earlier, I was in the Air Force, and and I I come to the conclusion that, you know, leading a life, um, a life of risk, you know, some risk, and where you might have to risk your life for others was was a worthwhile thing. It was important. Um, you have to do, you know, it, it's important to do for others when they can't do for themselves. And so as my as I developed that mentality, and you know, don't. Don't take this wrong. I don't, I'm not talking about being reckless. I'm talking about just, you know, protecting people to the best of your ability. But, and, um, you know, in the Clinton White House, I saw a lot of things that, that I didn't approve of. I didn't approve of them from a religious standpoint. I didn't approve of them from, you know, my moral standpoint. I didn't approve of them by any means. Um, but, you know, I, I raised my right hand and I took an oath swearing that I would um, that I would uphold the Constitution of the United States. So basically you have to kind of get a a little bit of a you know an iron hide and just say look that's what the job is um, and 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 you still have to protect these people they, they you know they may be portraying an image of one thing and and maybe something else behind closed doors but you know you said you would protect them and, and that's what you do and, and I did and um, it's not as quite as dramatic as I'm making it sound but but um, it was an important thing to do you left the Secret Service in 2003. That was just a couple of years after 9-11, and the Secret Service under a great amount of pressure to protect President Bush at that particular time. I understand there's an incident. This transpired outside the White House, and there was someone who approached you, and he basically told you that he had something to, to give you, and that's had uh, yeah. quite a bit of meaning to you. Yeah. Talk about that as we close. Yeah, so... You know, it's only like two weeks after 9-11, and, and I was working at the training center at the time as an instructor five days a week, and then every weekend you had to go down to the White House and pull 12-hour shifts. And I was standing on the on the, um, on the the outside of the White House on, on the 14th, 13th Street side of the complex, and I was standing behind these big cement jersey barriers, and things were very tense. You know, 9-11 had just happened. You know, they were still excavating the grounds, and... And the tension was really high, and this car pulls up, and it, and I, this man gets out, and he looks like about 60 years old, you know. And uh, but you know, you don't profile it, it just because he doesn't look like what you're looking for doesn't mean he can't be doing harm. And I told him he couldn't stop there, and he, he had this big smile on his face, and um, you know, put the trunk on his car. Well, hit my feet, you know, I was in my uniform and I had my pistol on my side, but hit my feet, I had a, a, a pepper and coke machine gun, submachine gun. And the guy kept refusing my directions. I picked up the, the MT5. Um, I went over the radio and said that I might have an issue. And the guy went into the trunk of his car. And he couldn't see the gun. It was right below the barrier. I was holding it about waist high. 
and he whipped this thing out of his car, and he walked over to me, and it was a Bible. And um, he was a minister, and he was trying to help reduce the stress of the first responders. And um, I came pretty close to, uh, you know, to trying to stop him, and because um, I thought it was a threat. And uh, he had this great smile on his face, and when he looked down, he saw the submachine gun. He uh, he kind of he realized what was transpiring, and he he apologized, and I apologized to him, and and he handed me the Bible, and I, I still have it today. Um, it was uh, it's something that uh, I won't forget. Gary Byrne here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to GaryJByrne.com. Well, finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Glenn Stanton, Director of Global Family Formation Studies for Focus on the Family. And he discussed matters concerning overpopulation, the sanctity of life, and human beings bearing the image of God in a conversation spurred by criticism of Chip and Joanna Gaines of Fixer Upper announcing they're expecting their fifth child. Here is some analysis now from Glenn Stanton. This has been a long, long trend. There was a very popular book that came out in the late 60s called The Population Bomb. A guy named Paul Ehrlich wrote this book, and he said exactly what this Canadian journalist is saying that you know, having too many kids is going to destroy the earth, it's going to cause mass starvation. In fact, get this, he said that according to his calculations, because the earth was increasing so much in population, that if we continued on the route that we were on in the late 60s, that England would cease to exist by the 1980s. Now, I didn't check this morning, but hmm. I think England is still around doing quite nicely. And he just – he said millions of people were going to starve from you know, just increased hunger because we wouldn't have enough food to provide for everybody. And what's interesting about Ehrlich's book was everything that he predicted to – turned out to be absolutely wrong. Today, we have 7 billion people. That's a lot of people. But we produce twice as much food today as we can consume. We waste, we throw away half the food on a regular basis that we consume. Now, yes, there's starving people in the world, but it's not an issue of not enough food, not enough space, things like that. It's an issue of politics and distribution, and that's very important. And so this woman is just this silly continuation based on this absolute lie that, you know, the more babies you have, the more harm and danger you're doing to the earth. But think about this. The people who grow up to solve the problems that we're facing to be able to create more food, to help us fix and care for the environment, every one of those people start out as babies. And if we don't have those babies, then we're not going to have the people who help us solve the human problems that we all deal with in the future. Well, Glenn, and I think that this conversation comes at a time where we've spent quite a bit of emphasis on the sanctity of life. As people that listen to our radio network know, January is Sanctity of Human Life Month. Yesterday was the 45th anniversary of that dreadful decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, legalization of abortion in America. And so we look at the Christian worldview perspective, a pro-life approach 
approach and our our pro-life views, our pro-life approach to issues is a, is a 180 degree contrast with what people that are you know concerned about the the population of the earth and concerned about this what they view as being excessive procreation what they're espousing well and that's exactly right and to bring in a christian worldview that is even beyond um the sanctity of life that we read in genesis 1 26 and 27 god says let us make man in our image, meaning all humans in our image, in our likeness. And Satan, he knows what every new baby that comes in the world is. It is a unique image bearer of God himself. And Satan, with his deep visceral hatred of God, when he sees a new baby come along, he, he hates that. And so if he can create a message, one of it's better to kill your children through abortion and it's better not to have children, he knows exactly what he's accomplishing. I want as few image bearers, these holy, divine, if you will, image bearers called new human beings, um, I want as few of those as possible. And so we need to understand what is behind this. It doesn't mean that this journalist in Canada is demonic any more than, you know, when Satan manipulates us to follow his lies, that we're demonic. But he is behind this with uh, in no uncertain terms. And we need to know and appreciate that. And we need to be proctored proclaimers of life because all life is precious, but because all life shows us in a unique and mysterious way what God is like. Glenn Stanton here on The Intersection. You can learn more about Focus on the Family by going to FocusOnTheFamily.com. You can also learn more by Googling Focus Findings online. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more by going to the website meetinghouseonline.info or visit faithradio.org and scroll over the programming tab. You'll find a link to The Meeting House there. You can subscribe to The Intersection Podcast through The Meeting House homepage and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also access the Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more when you visit the website. Also, there are two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page and get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.